trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, we welcome you to the show. And once again, I'm pleased to welcome my fellow right thinker, Eric Peters from epautos.com. Eric, great to catch up with you. How are you today, anyway? Well, I'm good, and it's glad to be. I'm glad to be back in the sheep-free zone. Yeah, let's let's talk about the face masks coming off suddenly, just like yep. that. I'm seeing faces again in public. How how could this be? Well, you know, isn't it interesting? It's a metric of the undertow of this whole thing. If people were genuinely scared of this virus, do you think that all of a sudden half or more of them would just cast aside their diapers? Uh, the only reason that they're casting aside their diapers all of a sudden is because the policies are no longer being enforced, the signs are being taken down, and yes, I know some of them have received their holy anointing, but a lot of them haven't, so now they feel safe uh, to take off their face mask uh, in order to be allowed to shop, which gives you an indication of the strength of peer pressure. It's like we're back in seventh grade again. Pretty crazy stuff. I mean, I look, on the mm-hmm. one hand, I'm very relieved to see it, but you had a recent column that talks about, yes, it's great to see the faces again, but there's, yeah. a, there's a scary side to this. Let's talk about that. Yeah, it's something that makes me uneasy. There is uh, a sort of asterisk by the, uh, the, the you can enter now without having the holy rag on your face, and the asterisk is uh, that you must have received the holy anointing, the jab. Um, they're not enforcing it yet because how can they? You know, somebody walks into a store showing their face, the presumption is that that person has received their holy anointing, but there really is no way to tell. And I think that as this goes on a little bit, we're going to find that that heresy will not be allowed, and that is going to be the the springboard for this attempt to require everybody to show proof of their holy anointing. And then it gets down to, well, how is that going to happen? Are they going to be checking people's papers at the door to every store? I don't think so. I think what they're going to try to do is insist that everybody have a tracking app on their phone, which you'll have to carry, and that can be used to scan your vaccine status uh, as you walk through the door of any store. Now, thank God, a number of states, I think most recently Alabama, have uh, passed laws saying, no, we will not permit that within our state. But I see this as a fight on the horizon, and particularly as we move into summer and into fall, and the cases, the cases will probably start to ramp up again, and uh, that will be the impetus for, for imposing more of that, I think. You know, I, I've wondered many times, I, I grew up in a household, you know, that was religious and believing the Bible and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the mark of the beast. And I often wondered, yep. how, how would the mark of the beast be instituted? And I'm not trying to say this is what that is, but, you know, you look at uh, what is required to participate in yeah. society, to enter this store, to purchase things, to, to work mm-hmm. and so forth. And I'm thinking, hmm, if it's not, at least it does a pretty good job of, uh, you know, it's missing a good opportunity, if not. Yeah, I'm not particularly religious. However, I can't uh, help but notice those parallels, and it's creepy. You know, whether you're religious or not, ultimately it, it, it works out to the same thing, doesn't it? You know, you're compelled to submit. And, you know, bear in mind, this won't be just about this particular vaccine. It's going to be about all kinds of other things besides vaccines in addition to vaccines. And I think that part and parcel of this is going to be some push to eliminate cash so as to make it such that all of your transactions are done electronically via that same cell phone. 
and they'll they'll then be able to simply turn off your ability to buy and sell the minute you do something that they find politically objectionable, like not getting the holy needle or not wearing your holy rag. I don't know if you have been following this, but uh, Rand Paul has taken a lot of heat after saying, I'm not going to get the vaccination. I've had COVID. I should be yep. immune, so I'm not going to get the vaccination. And wow, you think you think he would have had, had burned a Bible and a couple of Korans right there on the steps of the Capitol? You know, it's, it's incredible. It, it's an indication of the medieval times that we live in. And what I mean by that is Dr. Rand Paul is a physician, a practicing physician, unlike the quack Fauci, who graduated from medical school 60 years ago and never actually practiced medicine. So here we have a practicing doctor who is an expert in the field, who knows what he's talking about, and who has made an informed decision based on medical facts and based on his medical credentials to not receive an experimental vaccine with potentially very serious adverse consequences. You would think a rational person or a rational and fair-minded reporter would say, yeah, you know, the man has a point, and he's got a, he's got a sound basis for making that point. Perhaps we should listen to him. But rather than that, as you say, the response has been this religious frenzy of hatred almost burned the witch for him daring to question the orthodoxy of the COVID cult. I know it makes some people nervous whenever whenever comparisons are made between, you know, uh, uh, 1940s Germany and, mm-hmm. and America or American society today. You make a very apt comparison, though, in, in your article about how faces are showing and what's scary about mm-hmm. that in that in May of 1945. Right. The Fuhrer mm-hmm. is gone. The, the war is is ending. Germany yep. clearly is not going to prevail in this one. But there was a danger that came when people took off that symbol that showed that they were right. a good German. Help me understand the parallel between mm-hmm. masks coming off and and what happened back in 1945 in May in Germany. Yeah, if you went to, well, May of 45 is when the Third Reich collapsed and Hitler committed suicide in his bunker. And all of a sudden, just like that, it was very, very, very difficult to find anybody marching around with uh, a swastika armband on and hiling. Uh, just they melted away. They didn't exist any longer. But if you'd gone back six months, there would have been fanatical crowds of people shrieking the Fuhrer and wearing their armbands. Um, we have a similar situation now. We had all these people who were wearing their holy rags and who were acolytes of what I style this, this sickness cult that has taken over the country. And now, for the variety of reasons we've talked about, the, you know, the availability of their holy anointing and the fact that people can just sort of avoid the peer pressure and just go about their business doesn't change the underlying disease that these people are still um, fanatics or people who are prone to being manipulated by hysteria and not cured of that underlying sickness. And all it will take is a new set of circumstances to whip it up again. I think, that is, I think that's an on-target concern. And, and one of the things that I think you and I may have talked about this over the months, uh, the past few months is, you know, at least when you saw a person who was unmasked in public, like out shopping or something like mm-hmm. that, you could say with some certainty, well, there's a person who takes their freedom seriously. But there was very, oh, absolutely. But there was very few at times, and that was, that was mm-hmm. a little bit disheartening. It was very disheartening. Uh, you know, I, again, have made it a point throughout, throughout the course of this whole thing to go out practically every day and venture into these uh, public spaces to, to get a sense of what's going on. And during the height of it, when I was pretty much the only person in there showing my face, and occasionally I would see another heretic, I would always go up to them and say something. And in every case, uh, they were happy to see me as I was to see them, and often we would shake hands and talk for a few minutes. And it was very encouraging. Now it's a little bewildering. You know, you walk, walk into a Kroger, 
and you don't know any longer who is the good German and you know who is somebody who is an enemy of all of that madness. And so that kind of has me feeling pretty uneasy. No, I'm, I'm with you there. It, it, as disturbing as it was, it was also very helpful when people would wear their obedience on their face, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. Talk to me about uh, the, the likelihood of, of uh, mandated vaccinations. We've touched on this before, but it sure appears that this is the angle that is going to be used to, to bring the, the population uh, to heal. Well, they've been pretty explicit about it. When I say they, people like Fauci and all of that behind this, who've been pushing this since the day one, uh, the Rona itself was, you know, is the pretext for everything. And and the end goal has always been to establish this vaccination thing. And it's not really just the vaccination per se. It's the idea of forcing people to submit to this centralized, collectivized uh, control grid based on sickness on, on health to make your private personal health a matter of public concern make it something that uh, allows them to interject themselves into every little nook and cranny of your personal business of your life to control your life completely because after all almost anything can be alleged and asserted to somehow affect the health of the public that's what this is all about and that's why it's so important to fight this and I'm, I'm very very glad that a number of states um, have already passed laws uh, contrary to that. And I'm hoping, against all hope, that there will be enough pushback on an individual level and that people are just getting tired of this, or at least enough of them, and will not tolerate being compelled to not only be anointed, but to provide proof of their anointing in order to go about their lives. One of the memes that has been making the rounds lately has been uh, photos of people who literally have tattooed their, their uh, you know, mm-hmm. COVID uh, vaccination compliance on their shoulder. And, and mm-hmm. the, the caption says, some cattle brand themselves. <laughs> yeah, that's brilliant. And it's, it's most apt. There's this horrible, horrible tendency that some people have, and I, you know, I don't understand it because I'm not a clin- clinical psychiatrist, to, to tout in extremists their slavish devotion to uh, authority to do what they're told and to end up have, and portray that publicly as some kind of token of honor. You found similar things in in Germany and in the Soviet Union, um, most loathsomely with regard to children who were um, who were conditioned and taught uh, to squeal on their parents if they heard their parents say something that was critical of the regime. And that's the kind of that's the kind of personality problem that we're dealing with here. Okay, we've got to take a very quick break. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest, and we'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. And Eric, you had a recent article about the driver's license that I thought was just magnificent on so many levels, mainly because, you know, people like to remind me, you know, that license shows you drive. Driving's not a right. It's a privilege. Uh, You went into some great detail. Um, Lay it out for us. What, What is the driver's license and what isn't the driver's license? Well, we all know it's really a form of ID. If it, if it had anything to do with competence, there wouldn't be so many bad drivers out, would there? Amen, bro. Uh, yes. Uh, this article was, was uh, inspired by uh, something that occurred a few days ago. I was, I was doing a, uh, a video monologue, as I sometimes do, about an entirely unrelated subject. 
and I was driving on a road with a 55-mile-an-hour speed limit, rounded a curve, and this car in front of me literally stopped in the middle of the road because there was a bicyclist up ahead. Stopped? Wow. Stopped. Dead stop. Okay. And then just sort of began to creep forward because this person was so spatially challenged, I think, that they could not or were afraid to risk passing the bicyclist without the entire opposite lane being cleared. And you've probably encountered this sort of a thing before. And I thought to myself, now, this person probably has a completely valid driver's license. How can that be if somebody is that incompetent behind the wheel of a car? Another example is you got all these driver assistance technologies that they're putting into cars. For example, and this is the exact verbiage that they use, advanced parking assist. If you can't park a car, are, do you have any business being a driver? And how is it that such a person can be licensed? Wow. No, that's a, that's a good point. Well, and so let's we all know that this is it's just a it's just a means for them to assert that what was formerly an understood right, meaning you had a right to use the public thoroughfares to travel. That was a given once upon a time. You know, people don't realize that you didn't have to have a license to ride your horse. Uh, and horses are perfectly capable of, of trampling people and running into people, but you weren't required to have it because it was understood that your right to travel was a right. With a license, it's been reduced to a conditional privilege uh, at the whim of the state that can be revoked uh, by the state at its whim. Yeah, it's definitely a mechanism of control. And, you know, good luck trying to open a bank account, trying to establish mm -hmm. that uh, this is who I am in order to get a job. I mean, hey, maybe you have a passport or some other form mm -hmm. of ID, but uh, that driver's license is kind of the holy grail. Try to show your concealed carry permit at the airport when they ask for a photo ID. They won't accept Except it. Except the only thing you don't need it for is to vote. Oh, zing! <laughs> Very true. Which is sad. You know, as a libertarian, I, I, I find the idea of having to get a license fundamentally problematic for a variety of reasons. But the, the, the truly obnoxious aspect of it is that it is in no way a measure or an indication of any sort of competence. These are simply things by which the state asserts its control over you and then makes you pay for it. And not only just the once to get the license, but then to mulk you for all of these various contrived defenses. That driver, for example, the one that I was telling you about in the video, mm -hmm. uh, if a cop had been around, I doubt that person would have been pulled over and given a ticket. Whereas if the cops saw me pass the guy over the double yellow, which I did, I would have gotten the ticket. Okay. And I, look, I'm on board with you. I, I think you did the right thing, and I know that you are a capable, competent driver. Why is it that the public is so conditioned to see that oh, he crossed a double yellow line and that therefore you must be related to Charles Manson somehow? Well, for the same reason that they get up in arms, many of them, about the face typer thing. They have been conditioned to servility, to mindless obedience. Their, their entire mentality is, well, there's a law, there's a rule. Not, well, wait a minute, is that law or rule right? Is it rational? Does it make sense? Are there exceptions? Are there, uh, are there occasions when it doesn't make sense to obey the law? You know, these are questions that a lot of people never ask because they have been taught never to ask them. They've been taught to be mindless rule followers by the government school system. I, I note this disparity, particularly when I deal with people who were educated, and I put that in air fingers quotes, <laughs> in government schools, and homeschooled kids. I, you know, I've got a lot of friends who've homeschooled their kids, and these are, you know, these are teenagers, 14, 15-year-old kids, and they're incredibly thoughtful people that you can have adult conversations with, they are they're more capable of an adult conversation, a lot of these kids, than people that I know that are 40 and 50 years old. Wow. 
And you probably had that same experience because I know you know a lot of homeschool people too. I do. I do. I'm just, I'm coming back to the idea that uh, people naturally should object to having to ask permission to do something that, that really doesn't require government oversight. I know the, the public mindset, or at least the, the conventional wisdom is, well, how can we know that the people on the roads are safe? But as you point mm-hmm. out in your article, standing in front of the, the camera and getting 20 out of 30 questions <laughs> right on a quiz about traffic laws right. does not show competence. No, it does not. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I'm, re- I'm remembering something. It just popped into my head that I thought was poignant when I first encountered it, which was a long time ago. I think I was a high school kid, and it was a story related by a person who was an inmate in a concentration camp in Germany, and he asked the guard the simple question, why? And the guard turned around and said, there is no why here. Ooh. <laughs> well, at least he was honest. Right. But that's the nut of the problem that we're facing Rational considerations don't apply. You can't make an objection based on reason and facts. You are, your job is simply to, uh, to jump and follow and stand here, do that, wear this, accept what they tell you without question. I'm going to write down the there is no why here. Now, mm-hmm. I'll probably just only use it with my kids and then only if they're really out of line. But That was powerful to me wow. when I read that. It's it well it, it rips the mask off so to speak it, yeah. it shows you what's really behind it someone wants to show you who's boss and make sure right. you understand exactly. it's not you right there's there's a there's a, a horrific cruelty and and worse than cruelty even nihilism behind it just mindlessness so are are there this is going to sound a little conspiratorial but I'm going to pick your brain because mm-hmm. you're a smart guy on this stuff are there ways around the driver's license requirement. Well, yeah, no. Uh, if you are somebody who is very alert and drives a vehicle that doesn't stand out, you can probably go a very long time without having the driver's license and having any problems. That said, you know, as you mentioned earlier, leaving aside driving, it's extraordinarily difficult to do things like get a bank account or cash a check uh, or get a job without presenting your government ID. So short of going Amish and just saying goodbye to all of that. I don't know how, how you how you get out of that. I you know I myself would like to know more about how to get out of, get around that. Yeah, I mean I've I've heard of instances. In fact, I, I had a friend who once upon a time, uh, her driver's license was suspended. She didn't even know mm-hmm. it. She I, I don't yep. know if there was a mix up or something. She was not a criminal. She was a nurse. She was a good mm-hmm. upstanding citizen. But her driver's license had been suspended at some point. And she knew nothing about it until she was pulled over for some mm-hmm. pretext. Well, your tail light is out. You didn't yep. signal two seconds before you changed lane. Whatever it is. Right. She went to jail in handcuffs yep. because yep. that's what the procedure was. You're driving on a suspended license. I have to arrest you. That seems pretty right. serious. Well, it seems pretty extreme to me. And again, it's an example of the times in which we live that a person who is obviously not violent clearly has not harmed anyone. Uh, who has perhaps committed some offense against a statute, uh, is literally uh, uh, taken away in manacles and put into a jail cell. And the reason for that, of course, is because that is an implicit affront or uh, to the authority of the state. And that is the great crime. Orwell talked about this in his novel 1984, where there were two categories of people. There were the, the ordinary criminals, who were treated pretty well, comparatively speaking, and then there were the political criminals, and that's how it was also in the Soviet Union. And they were treated with extreme harshness because of the threat that their disobedience presented to the authority structure. Yeah, they were, well, they were committing thought crime. That's it, exactly. 
Eric, we're down to about the last uh, 30 seconds or so. Tell, tell our listeners about your website and what they can find there. Well, sure. It's a mix of libertarian political stuff and uh, just fun car stuff and motorcycle stuff and how these two things often relate to one another. So, you know, if you're interested in, in political stuff as it pertains to libertarian philosophical thought, there's plenty of stuff there. If you're just interested in cars, there's lots of stuff there. There's also stuff about motorcycles and there's car buying advice. Plus, I've got a really great community of regular readers who are incredibly thoughtful people and who often post things that get me to thinking along lines that I'd never thought of before. I'm not saying it will make you smarter, but uh, if you visit ericpetersautos.com, you will be smarter. So there. Eric? That's very kind, Brian. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for visiting with me. I look forward to our chat next week. Amen. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. You know, um, I'm a reluctant culture warrior. Let me explain that. Whether you want to be a part of the culture war or not, it's a pretty, uh, pretty safe bet. We are all in the process of being drafted. You know what I want to do? I want to mind my own business. I don't want to go impose my beliefs and impose my thoughts on everybody else. I don't want to hold everybody to a standard that, you know, they may not want to, to live up to. I think anything peaceful should be on the table. In other words, if somebody wants to do something and it's peaceful, it doesn't infringe on anybody's rights, I feel like it's, it's my job to stay out of their way, let them do what they're going to do, and expect the same in return. I don't know this is going to sound weird, but you know what? That's how societies operated for a long time. Free societies operated for quite some time. Not so today. Right now, we are, uh, we are under siege from cultural revolutionaries. I mean, the last year has been a particularly notable one. You remember, of course, it was a year ago today that George Floyd died, you know, in the custody of uh, Minneapolis police. And, of course, the culture war shifted into high gear and riots in the streets. Oh, can we call them that? I'm sorry. Peaceful demonstrations, mostly peaceful demonstrations. You get the picture. Now, I have, uh, I have wondered why it is that the cultural revolutionaries always seem to be the ones getting the upper hand. Is it just because they're more willing to do whatever it takes, you know, willing to, to uh, break all laws, trample on everybody's rights, whatever it may be? I don't know. But I did find an article this morning on lewrockwell.com. It's titled, Why Conservatives Will Never Win the Culture War. Now, I tend not to think strictly in terms of conservative and liberal. You know, it's, it's, to me, it's coercion versus persuasion. It's the, the collective versus the individual. But this is some really solid analysis of why is it that the culture warriors always seem to, uh, to emerge victorious and their, their uh, particular cause advances while the rest of us find ourselves painted into an increasingly smaller corner of things we're allowed to do, say, think, believe, you know, etc. This is what Attila Mert Sulker has to say. She says, Paul Gottfried recently published a piece in the Chronicle's blog addressing Mark Levin's charge that Joe Biden is the most racist president of the Oval Office since Woodrow Wilson. Of Levin's rant, Gottfried said the following, quote, Only two points in this rant seem even minimally true. Woodrow Wilson was a zealous scientific racialist who segregated the federal civil service. 
1913, this Crusader for Democracy Abroad had imposed segregated facilities on all departments of the federal government. Two, Biden has rushed to racialize every crisis or disagreement with his Republican opponents. He has accused them and other white Americans suspected of being Republican of systemic racism, even tried to turn a new voter identification requirement in Georgia into an extreme form of Jim Crow. Now, this stunt was already prefigured in Biden's warning to a Democratic audience in 2009 when he said of Republicans, they're going to put you all back in chains. Joe is certainly the most racially polarizing president in American history, surpassing even Barack Obama. But there's no evidence I've seen suggesting he is a white racist. End quote. Again, that was Paul Gottfried. So Attila Mert Sulker says, I should unsurprisingly note that I'm no fan of Joe Biden. In fact, I'd go back as far as to say that the racial pandering of Democrats like Biden in an effort to garner black votes has only harmed blacks in the long run. This makes itself manifest in a number of ways. Failed welfare state policies, the breaking up of families, the encouraging of other riots, or riots rather, that have harmed black business owners and much more. But she says, that's another discussion. Is Biden a racist? Well, unless one can read his mind, it's kind of hard to tell. Perhaps he is, or perhaps he's just a political opportunist. He is surely a demagogue. But she says, Levin's rant underscores something far more profound, namely a strategic failure on the part of conservativeinc.com. Darlings like Levin think that uh, via adopting the rhetoric and ideas of the left, they can fight the left. And to the contrary, by doing so, they are implicitly handing victory to the left by doing exactly what the left wants, normalizing everything that that conservatives once deemed as being associated with those on the other side of the culture war. And by the way, I have mistakenly uh, referred to Attila as a woman, and, and he is not, so please forgive me. This is, that sounds like a bad idea, right? Do not antagonize someone named Attila. So, my, my bad. Anyway, Attila Sulker says, Allow me to explain, beginning with Levin's rant. <clears throat> Conservatives rightly complain that the left calls them out as racists any time conservatives don't agree with critical race theory, racial quotas in universities, and a host of other claptraps. Conservatives clearly point out that there's a problem with leftists painting a false reality. In other words, what justifies calling people racist simply because they're not woke? But whose idea was it that the antidote to this is to just call the other side racist? In fact, would this not only make matters worse, now conservatives are in effect normalizing Americans calling each other racist in both private and public discourse. How is this not empowering those who want to instill a culture of hating America and scorning the past? Conservatives are boxing themselves into a perpetual defensive position in which they must keep qualifying that they are not racist and gradually denounce everything in their country's past in the process. But it doesn't end here. He says, Sean Hannity recently hosted firebrand conservative uh, Caitlin Bruce Jenner, who is running for governor of California. Hannity starts off, strangely, by stating, I have such respect for athletes. Well, did he forget about Colin Kaepernick already? Was it not only a mere five years ago that conservatives were denouncing Jenner, but now all of a sudden they're trying to make Jenner their own? Sure, now the line has been blurred between the two genders. Sure, now transgenderism is becoming normalized with conservatives being part of the effort. Sure, we've tainted our culture in the process, but hey, Caitlin is a conservative. She supports lower taxes. So the conservative argument goes. And Attila Golker says, I could expound a litany of other examples, like when hashtag MeToo was popular, Con Inc. readily used sexual assault allegations leveled against liberal pop- politicians 
many of them clearly guilty, of course, to bring down their careers, irrespective of the merit of the allegations. So much for con, that's conservative ink, hating cancel culture. Or even a Charlie Kirk's promotion of Lady Maga. You want to fight the left, he says, adopt their tactics and ridicule them. Don't adopt their ideas. So what's the overarching theme here? All these happenings are subservient to the idea of cultural wokeism. In other words, adopting the left's ideas as your own in an attempt to win the culture war. This outlines an extremely ineffective way of fighting the left. It's really just a normalization of everything conservatives ought to stand against. The left doesn't care whether transgenderism or cancel culture is of a conservative or progressive flavor. All they care about is the rapid dissipation of Western traditions in anything deemed normal. Historian Brian McClanahan notes, The left's game is cancel culture, and it's a game in which conservatives will always be playing defense. You cannot play the left's game on their field and by their rules and hope for success. Charges of racism are emotional, not intellectual and are used successfully to change the narrative. End quote. So by readily calling people racists, conservatives are further breeding societal distrust. In other words, everything is racist now. And opening a can of worms that will lead to the pulling down of more statues, renaming of more buildings, etc. By readily declaring sexual assault at the site of mere allegations, they're normalizing cancel culture, which will come back to bite conservatives. By trying to somehow incorporate transgenderism with conservatism, frankly, they are no longer conservatives, in my view. And so he says, how should conservatives fight the left? Easy answer. Ridicule them, mock them, but don't legitimize their ideas. As he said in a previous article, suppose the woke campus police try to enforce a mandatory LGBT training on students for their implicit biases. Now, one could sarcastically go along with this narrative in an attempt to ridicule it by saying, why aren't you voicing your concerns for the rights of aromantic people? Why is this minority never represented? Therefore, why are you perpetuating hate and exclusivity? In this example, the conservative pretends to support the leftist in an effort to delegitimize the leftist. A conservative should not, instead, form their own conservative variety of diversity training in response. Attila Sulker says, in this sense, this sort of delegitimization draws upon the left's tactics of canceling anything they deem inappropriate. Keep in mind that the left does not care to debate or argue, it seeks to destroy. Conservatives should not cross swords with leftists and expect a fruitful discussion to come out of it. To have any chance of winning the culture war, conservatives must fight like leftists, not sound like leftists, adopt their tactics, but not their ideas. There's a big difference. Yes, the left is merciless and it won't end its perpetual smear campaign, but conservative wokeism sounds about as dumb as big government conservatism or compassionate conservatism. Conservatives cannot fight fire with fire, for at the end of the day, the whole house burns down. I'm going to beg to differ with Attila Mertz-Sulker's analysis here. I don't think you have to use the same tactics. Now, here's, here's what I'm saying. If you have a goal, Let's say your goal, just for the sake of argument, is to promote personal liberty. I think you have to use the highest means possible to advance that message. And that means whatever you're going to say, whatever you're going to do to advance that, has to be done out of love, out of persuasion, and not out of a desire to, you know, politically crush those who oppose you. Yeah, I understand. It doesn't get as many headlines. It's not as glitzy. It takes place more on a personal level. But I think it actually brings about meaningful change in people's hearts. Because that's where it's got to take place. Something to think about.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, a quick shout out to our sponsors, hslammo.com, pure-light.com, and monticellocollege.org. There's a link in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com, and you can just click on that to find out more about them. I, I would love it if you if you like what you're hearing or if you get value out of what you're hearing, drop a note to these uh, sponsors and tell them, hey, I, I heard your message. It reached my ears thanks to that uh, silver-tongued devil, Mr. Hyde. All right. You know, I stopped respecting politicians a long time ago. Yes, there was a time when I was deeply in politics and, you know, look whose hand I got to shake, you know. Um, I don't know when, exactly when my, my attitude changed, but it has changed, and I, I do not have respect for politicians. Statesmen? Now, that's another example, but statesmen are extremely rare. Really rare. As in, the whole political system seems uh, set up in such a way as to prevent them from being a part of it. So, my deepest respect these days is reserved for those principled souls willing to engage in civil disobedience. Right? We have no shortage of people who are, you know, anxious to control other people. You will do this. You will do that. Pull up your mask. You know, whatever it is. The control freaks are, are having a field day. They have been let loose. They're off their leashes. And sometimes the best way to fight back against that is not with violence, but with simple civil disobedience. Now, for a lot of folks, when you say civil disobedience, the first question that pops into their mind is, well, what, uh, what exactly does that look like? Here I'm going to turn to my friend Lawrence W. Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education. He has compiled a list of 11 of the most memorable acts of civil disobedience in history, a short list of what might be called great moments in civil disobedience. Larry Reed says it like this. He says, civil disobedience evokes a range of reactions when people hear the term. Some instinctively wince, regarding it as antisocial or subversive. Others, like me, want to know more before we judge. What's prompting someone to engage in it? Who will be affected and how? What does the disobedient person hope to accomplish? Are there alternative actions that might be more effective? In fact, he says one of his earliest childhood memories was an act of civil disobedience. His family resided near Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, about 11 miles from the Ohio border town of Negley. At the time, Pennsylvania prohibited the unauthorized introduction and sale of milk from Ohio. But he says on many a Saturday in the late 50s and early 60s, he and his father would drive over to Negley and fill the backseat of their car with good, cheap milk. During the drive home, he would caution me, keep it covered and don't say anything if the cops pull us over. Now, Lawrence Reed says, for me, milk smuggling was a thrill ride. It was downright exciting to evade a stupid law while keeping an eye out for a cop who might have nothing better to do than bust a couple of notorious dairy dealers. He goes, I know my dad made a few bucks when he resold the milk to happy neighbors. We never had any pangs of regret or conscience for committing this victimless crime. We were simply supporting a cause that even Abraham Lincoln may have endorsed when he said the best way to get a bad law repealed is to enforce it strictly. Now, government officials hate civil disobedience because it's a disgruntled citizen's way of thumbing his nose. If we're unhappy with laws or policies that are stupid, destructive, corrupt, counterproductive, unconstitutional, or in other ways indefensible, they advise us to do the democratic thing, which means hope for the best in a future election. Stand in line to be condescended to at some boring public meeting or just shut up. 
He says, my go-to expert on the issue is not a politician or a preacher or an academic. It's Henry David Thoreau who famously asked, must the citizen ever for a moment, even or in the least degree rather, resign his conscience to the legislator? Why has every man a conscience then? I think that we should be men first and subjects afterward. So if the choice is obedience or conscience, Larry Reed says, I try my best to pick conscience. Now, historically, civil disobedience, the refusal to comply with the law or the command of a civil or a political authority, is exceedingly common. Sometimes it's quiet and largely unnoticeable. Other times it's boisterous and public. For an act to be one of civil disobedience, it must be accompanied by principled or philosophical objections to a law or command to exclude such acts as simple theft, fraud, and the like. He says, some political theorists argue that to qualify for civil disobedience, an act must be peaceful. Others allow for violence in their definition of the term. Revolutions are certainly acts of disobedience, though because they tend to be accompanied by violence, they often aren't very civil. In any event, the indefensible violence that took place earlier this year in Washington shouldn't blind us to the very honorable history of genuine civil disobedience and its loftier motivations. So this is just a few of uh, the, the entries on his short list of great moments in civil disobedience. And he presents them just as interesting food for thought, but asks you to question, how many of these acts could you endorse? First one, defying a pharaoh in ancient Egypt. Chapter 1 of the Old Testament book of Exodus provides what is probably the oldest recorded incidence of civil disobedience, dating back to about 3,500 years ago. Two midwives in Egypt, named Shipra and Puah, disobeyed an order from Pharaoh to kill all male Hebrew babies at birth. When they were called to account, they lied to cover their tracks. Now, the Exodus account says their defiance pleased God, who rewarded them for it. So anyone who says God is always on the side of politicians must wrestle with that example, as well as uh, this next one. That is, uh, number two, is Sophocles' portrayal of Antigone. The playwright Sophocles wrote numerous literary tragedies, one of which, though fictional, tells the tale of Antigone, Creon, the king of Thebes, attempts to prevent her from giving her brother Polynices a proper burial. Antigone declared her conscience to be more important than any royal decree. She was sentenced to death for her defiance, but she never recanted. Example number three is civil disobedience in the case of Judea and the slaughter of innocents. The book of Matthew in the New Testament reveals that when told that a Jewish Messiah had been born in Bethlehem, King Herod felt personally threatened. He ordered the Magi, who were three visiting wise men, to go to the city, find the baby, and then report back to him. Now, as we all know, the Magi did indeed go to Bethlehem, where they presented Joseph, Mary, and baby Jesus with gifts. But they then disobeyed Herod and vanished. And in a fit of anger, the king then ordered the execution of all male children under two years old in the vicinity of Bethlehem. If Joseph, Mary, and others who had assisted them had not refused to comply, well, the story of Christianity would be quite different. I'm just going to skip over the next couple here. Uh, number four is Robert the Bruce defies a pope. Number five, Flushing's stand for the Quakers. Number six, the Boston Tea Party. I mean, this was, uh, I, I still see this one come up from time to time. It was civil disobedience. Was it violent? Well, you know, they did, they did break stuff. Although I've heard some accounts that say they did it in a, in a pretty responsible way. I don't know how you split the hairs there, but... That was a key part of the uh, American uh, Revolution because that kind of civil disobedience evolved into the Declaration of Independence and then eventually open warfare between Britain and its colonies. 
You have Robert Small's daring escape. He was a slave born in South Carolina in 1839. 23 years later, in a daring escape, he and other slave friends commandeered a Confederate transport ship in Charleston Harbor. They sailed it right past Confederate guns and into the embrace of the Union blockade. Now, he says, I share this as, a, an, as, as an example, uh, or this example is emblematic, rather, of the historic civil disobedience of all runaway slaves, as well as the courageous support they received from those who defied fugitive slave laws and provided them life-saving assistance. The fight for freedom of black Americans didn't end with the Civil War. There were those who resisted Jim Crow laws like Rosa Parks. She committed civil disobedience when she refused to give up her bus seat in Montgomery, Alabama. Number eight, Everywhere USA. This is just the defiance of prohibition during the, uh, the time when prohibition was the law. Then you have uh, number nine, Gandhi's famous salt march. This is uh, number 10 is probably one of my favorites, and that's Sophie and Hans Scholl's heroic stand. Sophie Scholl and her brother Hans were students at the University of Munich at the height of Hitler's power in 1942. They formed the White Rose Movement. And by the thousands, they printed and distributed leaflets denouncing Nazi rule and atrocities against the Jews. Now, they never engaged in violence as they worked to undermine support for the regime, but they were eventually found out, arrested, put on a show trial, and beheaded. If you haven't seen the 2005 film, Sophie Scholl, The Final Days, I promise you it will move your heart. It's that powerful. Number 11 on Lawrence Reed's list here, The Soviet Union's Evil Empire came undone in part due to Eastern Europe's singing revolution. This took place in Estonia. The singing revolution put up widespread civil disobedience to music. In Poland, uh, a flourishing underground produced massive black markets until the communist regime declared the country ungovernable and scheduled free elections. When Romania's dictator Nicolae Ceausescu sent troops to arrest a pastor in Timisoara, unarmed congregants ringed the church to defend him. The soldiers refused to fire on them, and the Romanian revolution was underway. By the way, that dictator was dead within a month. So I have a link to these articles in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Actually, there's quite a few links within Larry Reed's article from the Foundation for Economic Education. Here's the question I just want to leave you with. Where is your line in the sand? Where would you say, I will not go one step further, even with a bayonet poking you in the back? I can't answer it for you, but I think it's a question every one of us needs to ask ourselves, probably sooner than later. This is The Brian Hyde Show.